Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome the godfather of punk, an activist, film composer, and co-founder of the MC5, Mr. Wayne Kramer. Wayne, how are things? Well, things are kind of upside down these days. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny that you say that because it's a moment in time where it seems like change is the most prominent since the late 60s. As a person who has dealt with the police and injustice, what do you make of where we're at in the world right now? Well, it's long overdue. Um, on, On the way into the studio Earlier today, I was listening to um, Sirius, Sirius XM uh, satellite radio, and they were playing a version of The Temptations' Ball of Confusion. And this song came out in 68 or 69, and <clears throat> I was struck by every line in the lyrics was directly referring to American racism. You know, uh, uh, people moving out, people moving in. Why? Because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. 1968, 50 years ago, you know, brilliant poets and songwriters and artists were singing and talking about the challenges of being a black person in America then and and so you know to to see the this the the shift that's that that we're going through right now is just makes you really appreciate um the moment well does this moment look different to you than the other times people have taken to the streets it is different yeah it's uh you know there there is a an advantage to have in these many years because it's been building and building and building and building and and uh you know there was a little more fear um in the 60s because um we were we were faced with the possibility of uh of uh soviet and american leaders uh pushing the button which would have meant that the earth would have been a cinder floating around the sun. And, you know, that was a real concern for us. Um, also, the, the, the fear of, um, you know, what are the authorities going to do next? Because we were on the uh, cutting edge of, of the kind of uh, rep- repressive uh, efforts that were coming out of the administration at the time. Um, and it's, it struck me as, as a bit scarier than this is today. But then, you know, today we have the coronavirus, you know, the COVID-19 or 18 or 17 or whatever it is. And, uh, and that's fairly scary on its own. But I think that's the main difference, you know, that that the the movement is much more refined today. That that the guidance and the direction and the demands are very specific. And I've just been really impressed with um, some people in positions of leadership really stepping up. And uh, this morning I heard that the 
the mayor of Boston declared racism as a, a, uh, a state emergency and to be dealt with uh, on emergency terms uh, because, you know, this is, this is intolerable what's been happening and it's been happening for far too long and uh, it's very gratifying to see, you know, the Titanic turn ever so slightly. Well, I'd like to take you way back for a moment. What was it like getting your fix of art as a youth? And what were some of the primary influences that helped shape the artist that you would become yourself? Well, the electric guitar, I think, was the, the portal um, into uh, a, a way out of um, ending up in the factory in Detroit. I mean, my choices, as best I understood them as a teenage boy, was... Um, you can go in the Army and go to Vietnam, not such a good idea. You could go to the factory and work 40-plus uh, hours a week in a mind-numbing, soul-stealing, uh, repetitive motion uh, job. Um, or you could turn to to criminal pursuits. <laughs> and, uh, my options, that's how I viewed my options. And then there was the electric guitar. And the electric guitar uh, was the conduit that turned me on to, to artists like Chuck Berry, who was inventing rock and roll, uh, you know, right in front of me. I, I listened to these songs, and, and he defined... Uh, a narrative, uh, a culture that uh, was mine, that spoke to me, not to my parents, not to everybody at school, but to me it spoke. So, you know, what I was hearing in the music, in the guitar playing of Chuck Berry, what I later experienced in the British first wave, and this idea that um, as an artist I could reinvent myself and and um, and and uh, you know, open up the parameters of what might be possible. That it might be possible to get out of Detroit. It might be possible to to travel around the world and to see how other people live and and to play music for for other people and and kind of get a sense of the whole planet that we live on, not just that little, you know, eight or ten block area that I lived in in Detroit. Well, history is showing just how hardworking the MC5 were. Do you think that this came from growing up in Detroit? I'm, I'm pretty certain that it had a great deal to do with it, yes. The answer is yes. You know, the Detroit had a unique... Um, place in in, uh, in the American experience in as much as we were the home of uh, organized labor. The Port Huron Statement was written in Detroit, and the auto industry and the United Auto Workers um, really um, advocated for workers' rights. And so for all of us that grew up in that world, um, we thought that, you know, that was how it, it should be. That's how, I thought that's how the whole world worked, is, you know, you had collective bargaining and you had uh, 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 workplace protections 
and uh, come to find out that the whole world didn't operate that way. But we did in Detroit, and and uh, there was always the sense that uh, we 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 honored hard labor, that we found nobility in hard work. And, uh, you know, later on, years later, um, I, I was in a band, uh, a short-lived project with um, Johnny Thunders. And I always used to say, Johnny, okay, it's 7 o'clock. It's time to go to, uh, to uh, work. <laughs> Let's go to rehearse. And he'd say, man, I don't go to work. I go to play. <laughs> and, you know, in a sense, it's semantic, but... But then I get what he was saying. You know, it was a, a different perspective, you know. That comes from growing up in Detroit, I believe. Where do you think that that heaviness in your sound grew from? I think a lot of it came out of just the frustration of being te- teenagers and not having a voice. And, and so uh, I felt like, well, then my voice had to be louder <laughs> to be heard. Um yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, there, there were sounds that people were creating in popular music that I was excited about. You know, Jeff Beck's guitar playing was very exciting to me. And, of course, I mentioned Chuck Berry. And then when I discovered the free jazz movement and the musics of John Coltrane and Albert Eiler and and uh, Archie Shepp and Pharaoh Sanders and Sun Ra and Cecil Taylor that I realized this was this was the direction of the future uh, for me and for the music uh, of my band, the MC5. Being close with Iggy Pop and the Stooges, did you think that you were creating a scene that was going to resonate as big as it ended up doing worldwide? Well, of course, that was our hope. <laughs> you know, we we had that unbridled uh, enthusiasm of youth, and of course, we we uh, fantasized that we would be uh, internationally recognized and and uh, and uh, you know successful. Um, and and I think, uh, with the exception of uh, the getting rich part, we did. <laughs> Although Iggy does pretty well, I understand he's he's made some money. But you know, maybe I sh- I would have been better off if my heroes were, you know, international fi- financiers or you know wealthy. Uh, stock uh, hedge fund manipulators you know my heroes are always uh, drug addicts uh, jazz musicians and drunken poets and uh, and uh, you know crazed uh, political revolutionaries <laughs> <laughs> well was it always important for you to have that political undertone in your music well you can't separate it you know it it, it was uh, it was part of the life that I lived, and and I was a, I'm a, a member of a generation that um, was in agreement across the country that the direction we were going in was wrong and, and negative and destructive, and uh, to to honor the framers' intent. Um, you know, democracy is is uh, participatory, 
And so, you know, if you don't like the way things are going, uh, it's incumbent on you to say something about it, to do something, to take action. And uh, and uh, I took them seriously when that's what they said, and and uh, and uh, that's why we uh, we formed the White Panther Party to give us a vehicle to express our frustration with the slow pace of change. Well, how did your time with G.G. Allen come to be? Well, you know, I was living in Manhattan. It was in the 80s. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a session guitarist uh, on occasion. Uh, there isn't much session work anymore. But um, for a while there, it was, uh, it, it was another way that you could help keep the wolf off the door and uh, a friend of mine called me up and said he was producing this young artist Gigi Allen and um, he asked if he knew me and could he get me to come and play on his recording session and uh, of course I'm uh, almost always happy to, to help people out on sessions if I can and uh, I went over and uh, met the guys and uh, and uh, talked about music and learned their songs and we recorded them and to be honest you know when I met him and I worked with him he was just a young um, bright-eyed bushy-tailed uh, really ebullient young man who uh, was very excited about his songs and his band and was thrilled to have me there on the sessions and it was great fun. Uh, you know, he had not yet um, evolved into the bizarre, you know, scatological performance <laughs> artist that he later became. So, <laughs> he was just a nice young kid, uh, you know, the guy I met. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been stated many times about the rage in music dissipating, even though we're living under one of the most divisive presidents of all time. Do you think that this is the case? In a sense, it is because um, there, the, the, the the paradigm of, of there there are so many ways for content to be produced that music doesn't have a singular place anymore. It's kind of relegated in there with Facebook and and uh, the iPhone and. Twitter and, you know, videos and streaming and uh, I don't think it's quite as important today as it was in my generation. You know, we lived and breathed um, the music, the artists, the bands, um, you know, gigs. We were, we were deep into everything and I think it's... Uh, I just think it's it's kind of watered down now. So, uh, but I think I think you know you will find artists that that have the same commitment and the same degree of uh, of uh, anger and and uh, and uh, dissatisfaction and and uh, you know just just uh, fury with uh, the. the intolerable hypocrisy that we that we live in every day in this country well what led you into doing film scores uh, I got old <laughs> <laughs> getting in getting in 
to the band just didn't quite have that excitement in my, you know, when I was a kid, when I was 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and even 60, I was still excited about getting in the van. But, you know, the last 10 years I've, I've, I've decided, you know, I've, I've moved into a different, uh, you know, I'm happily married. I have a beautiful seven-year-old son and, uh, you know, I want to be home with him and, uh, and uh, I, I have a great commitment to my work in jail guitar doors. Um, and so it, I, I always felt like it was something, you know, I thought I could do. And, uh, and so I've kind of been moving in that direction for the last 10 years. So I, mean, I, I still qualify as the new guy in scoring. <laughs> and I still have a great deal to learn, which I find very exciting. Well, you've worked a lot with Adam McKay in Talladega mm-hmm. Night, Step Brothers, Big Short, etc. Do you right. find that people like that are keeping that revolutionary spirit alive in comedy? And how did your relationship with Adam come to be? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, I think I think uh, Adam is keeping all of that alive in comedy. Um, it it happened because the great uh, producer Hal Wilner who we just lost because of the COVID uh, epidemic. Um, One of my great friends that died in this and really was a great loss. Hal was working, uh, you know, Hal was the uh, music supervisor on uh, Saturday Night Live. And Adam was the head writer. And so they were great friends and they shared uh, their political views and their cultural views. And so Adam hired uh, Hal to help him with the music, the licensed music on Talladega. Um, They had hired a composer um, by accident. (laughs) They had heard uh, some cues that they thought this guy had written. Turns out he didn't even write those cues. Somebody else wrote them, (laughs) and they hired him anyway. And then as they were getting into it, they realized that the guy couldn't rock. He was good with the orchestra, or he was competent anyway. I don't think he was exceptional, but but he was competent. Uh, but he just he couldn't rock to save his life. And all his, all his, you know, and this movie's full of, you know, NASCAR, <laughs> high-energy race scenes, high, you know, big thousand horsepower engines going 210 miles an hour around a big oval um and his music sounded like you know bad movie rock so they had this dilemma and uh adam's saying man who could we can we get somebody to come in and fix this stuff and and uh hal said why don't you call wayne kramer and he said you think he god you know do you know him and hal said yeah of course he lives here in l.a so they called me up and they said, would you come over and talk to us about music for this movie? And I went over and, and immediately um, found a soul brother in, in uh, McKay. And uh, I listened to the, the film and uh, they asked me, could I produce some high energy guitar rock, aggressive guitar rock? And I said, yeah, I was pretty sure I could do that. And uh, that was the beginning of my my work in uh, feature films and television uh, with Adam McKay. It's 
been terrific. I just saw him last weekend, and he's doing great. And uh, we got some new projects in the in the works. So. I'm excited to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Well, has there ever been interest on your part to step behind the camera and make art in that form? Oh yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd always wondered about it. You know, I, as a musician, I'm I'm always listening, and and I'd go to the movies, and and I realized that. You know, the way we consume motion pictures includes music. It's, it comes with the territory. It's not a afterthought, although Hollywood treats it that way often. Um, but, um, that, you know, somebody has to make that music, and I just always, always had the sense that maybe I, maybe I could do that. I know everybody in a rock band thinks that they can do music for film and television. Um, they can't. <laughs> and there's a number of good reasons why they can't. Uh, I was just fortunate enough to, to be of an age and mature enough that those things didn't upset me. How did Jill Guitar Doors come to be? Uh, it's no secret. I, I served a prison term in the 1970s. And I caught the tail end of rehabilitation in American corrections. Uh, in fact, they told me that um, this was all going to go away. All these classes and and Pell Grants and um, uh, programming and and uh, you know uh, therapy and uh, it was all going to go away because the government had decided that. It doesn't work, and we just want to lock people up. That's all. If you're going to do crime, then you got to be prepared to do time. And they weren't joking. And so after I was released, I kept watching as more and more people just like me went to prison under worse conditions for much more severe sentences. And over the years, I just started to get angry. And I kept waiting for some progressive politician to step up and say, you know, what are we doing here? This is something's going wrong, because when I went to prison, there were uh, 350,000 people in prison in all of America, both state and federal. Um, about 50,000 in the federal prison system and the balance in the state prison systems. Um, today, uh, we have 2.3 million of our fellows uh, under lock and key. So something, you know, went terribly wrong, and uh, they, we have ended up destroying uh, generations and communities with these um, overly harsh sentences. And, uh, uh, you know, I just said finally... Uh, I know myself well enough that if I don't find a positive outlet for my um, my anger, uh, it'll turn negative. And so, what could I do that would be positive? Well, I always enjoyed it when when uh, musicians came in from the street and played concerts in in the prison I was in. Uh, uh, so okay, maybe I can do that. And so we started started uh, with that, and I ran into Billy Bragg, and he told me about a initiative he had launched in the United Kingdom 
to uh, provide guitars, acoustic guitars mostly, to correctional facilities as tools for rehabilitation, using music as a tool um, to help people learn how to express complex feelings and memories and emotions um, positively in a non-confrontational way. And uh, I said, you know, that sounds perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And uh, on that day, uh, Billy Bragg, uh, my wife, Margaret Kramer, and I uh, founded Jail Guitar Doors USA. Um, today, our instruments are in over 170 American prisons. Um, we have uh, songwriting workshop programming um, in uh, on 10 California prison yards, and we've uh, uh, we are nationwide. We have programs in the Cook County Jail in Chicago and uh, on Rikers Island in New York. Uh, we're in the Detroit, uh, in the Michigan Department of Corrections. Uh, we're in Texas. We're in Florida. Uh, we're in a handful of states across the Midwest. Um, and uh, the, the the movement is growing. Every week we get uh, we get an email from somebody that works in a prison somewhere in America saying, "Hey, uh, we heard you guys help people get music programs going in prisons. Can you help us?" And uh, and of course we do every time we can. Uh, and lately we've we've uh, sharpened our focus on young people. Um, we're trying to work upstream. If I can get a guitar or two turntables and a microphone in a young person's hand and task them with telling me their story um, today, um, then maybe I don't have to give them one later at San Quentin. Well, the MC50, in my opinion, is the most important reunion to date. Was this something that you were always thinking about, or did it take pushing and suggestions from elsewhere to really make things happen with that? No, I'd, I had been kicking the idea around, you know, since we started in, I think it was around 2005 when we did DKT MC5, I started just to come to the realization that, you know, there were enough people out there that wanted to hear the music of the MC5 played live, um, and they weren't um, too... too um, they weren't too picky about who did it. <laughs> and uh, if I was there and, uh, uh, you know, the band was a great band and we played well, then that's what mattered. And, uh, and so that's what I started to find ways and, and, uh, and uh, situations that I thought would allow it. And, uh, you know, we found that... Uh, that uh, people were willing to plunk down some of their hard-earned cash to come and see us play. Um, so we, we've launched, you know, we've done a number of world tours, and, uh, and uh, MC50 just, we finished our last tour on February 25th, which was, like, right when the <laughs> COVID hit, hit the States. I mean, I came home from Australia to... Welcome back. We're shutting everything down. And uh, we did, you know, we toured Europe a couple times. We toured uh, Australia and New Zealand, and we did the United States uh, 
a very thorough tour of uh, the country, and uh, and uh, I thought, you know, this was a, it, it had been a good a good run, and so now we're all sitting home twiddling our thumbs like every other band. Well, to say that the personnel that you gathered for the reu- for this MC50 reunion is great, in my opinion, is an understatement. It was. It was above <laughs> amazing, in my opinion. Can we expect to see more from the MC50 when the world opens back up again? Yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, you know, everybody, you're right. I, I was very fortunate to, to get the people that I got. Um, I just happened to catch them all, you know, with an opening in their schedules. And uh, and uh, so, you know, that is, is a... Um, that's just the window, and that window closes after a while. Billy, I know, is hot to get uh, Faith No More back on tour, mm-hmm. and in fact, they had a whole tour booked, and they lost it because of the virus. Um, and I know Kim is trying to work out some things with uh, the Soundgarden uh, remaining band members, and uh, and. Uh, you know, Brendan Canty is like the hardest working drummer in show business. He sure is. <laughs> I mean, we, we would we would go on tour and come home from the tour, and he would go back out with the Mesthetics, <laughs> and you know he would do ten dates while we took a ten day break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He'd get back in the van and go do ten clubs club shows. He's amazing. So, you know, will we do more? Yeah, of course, I'm going to play more. If I'm breathing in and out, I, I want to play for people. Well, as, okay, you were as electric or even more so now in your 70s. What is that mentality when you step onto a stage now? You, you like, it's like a lightning bolt shooting off of you. You're still the most electric man in the history of music. Thank you so much. You're very kind to say that. You know, I just look at it as time to play. And, you know, that's my turf on that stage. I've worked hard on it, and I know what I'm doing up there. I know how to play the guitar. I know how to sing. I know how to dance. I know how to entertain the people. And it's my great pleasure. I mean, I enjoy it immensely. Well, getting to play the DNC again with Rage Against the Machine, did it feel like nothing had changed? Or was there a new atmosphere that you didn't feel the first time around? No, some things had changed, but a lot hadn't changed. Most things hadn't changed. Certainly, you know, what we're facing today um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, hadn't emerged yet. And we were still kind of slogging along with, uh, with uh, you know, politics as usual and, and uh, big business, big corporations stealing all the money. I mean, they haven't left any money for the rest of us. They took it all. <laughs> <laughs> These hedge fund guys who, who get uh, mahogany um, teak decks built on their penthouses in Manhattan – I mean, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Give me a break. Well, would you say that Bernie Sanders is the closest thing to a politician that really gets it in your time? Yeah, sure. He's, he's, uh, 
he's a he's a he's a dyed in the wool um, socialist, and he's my man, and uh, we work real hard for him. We we helped we launched his uh, campaign um, in 2016, and we were put on the first concerts to uh, to get him off the ground in Iowa. And uh, I was there. It was it was amazing. It was electric. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up? Good question. I've got, I've got, uh, I've got you know, been working on a couple things. Um, I was gonna, I was getting ready to make another free jazz album, and my par- my poor partner died. <laughs> the Dr. Charles Moore, who I loved immensely, was my best friend and and teacher for sixty years. And uh, it was a, a big loss when when he uh, left this mortal plane. Um, so I don't know. I might I might do a uh, uh, another jazz record. I've been working uh, writing with Mike Doty from Soul Coffin. Um, we might do some things together. We cut a couple songs and uh, we might do some some touring. And we're just trying to figure out. You know what makes the most sense when things start. You know, maybe by the beginning of next year, um, because this this virus is is uh, is out of control. Uh, you know, the government. There is no national policy. There is no strategy. Uh, no unified uh, message about how we're going to go about surviving this virus, and it's making it worse. The virus is actually worse today than it was when we started, and it's going to continue to get worse. So I, I don't think we're going to be touring this year. Um, but I think next year, um, you know, they may have a vaccine by then, and uh, and we'll be able to get this uh, behind us. Um, so you know, I you know, if I'm if I'm uh, breathing in and out, I'll I'll be doing something. Well, I'm... I'll figure something out interesting to do. I'm excited to hear that, and I will always be there to support you. Um, it, it really means a lot for me that you came on and spent some time with me today. You, your impact, it, this show has been said a lot of times, it's a lot about influences. I, I don't know anybody bigger of an influences to me, to film, to music, to politics than you. You really are... <laughs> on on a pedestal to a lot of us so it really means a lot that you that you took the time today to speak with me uh, it's been my pleasure you you're uh, you're an erudite fellow and i enjoyed speaking with you thank you again thank you for listening it was an absolute honor to speak to the iconic wayne kramer make sure to support jail guitar doors and look out for all upcoming projects from Wayne, and hopefully the MC50 will get back together in the future, and I can see you all there. This concludes our broadcast day.